This is Lisa DeLay, and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Welcome to Spark My Muse, everybody. Today, my guest is Dr. Daniel J. Siegel, MD, who received his medical degree from Harvard University, completed his postgraduate medical education at UCLA with training in pediatrics and child adolescent adult psychiatry, and served as a National Institute of Mental Health Research Fellow at UCLA, studying family interactions with an emphasis on how attachment experiences influence emotions, behavior, autobiographical memory, and narrative. Dr. Siegel is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine and the founding co-director of the Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA. He's an award-winning educator and a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association and recipient of several honorary fellowships. He is also the executive director of the Mindsight Institute an educational organization which offers online learning and in-person seminars that focus on how the development of mindsight in individuals, families, and communities can be enhanced by examining the interface of human relationships and basic biological processes. We will be discussing his latest book, Aware, The Science and Practice of Presence. Thank you so much for being on my show today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. That was a mouthful, of course, but I wanted to make sure that we got in several things about what we're going to be talking about today because it, it mixes what a lot of people think of as, as the spiritual or what is sometimes categorized in religious and spiritual traditions, but with a very strong um, medical and scientific and empirical influences. And maybe you could talk a little bit about, maybe even introduce us to what interpersonal neurobiology is? Sure, absolutely. Well, interpersonal neurobiology is a term for a field where we combine all the different disciplines of science together into one framework. So we use a process basically of exploring, for example, mathematics and physics, chemistry, biology, which would include neuroscience and genetics, um, exploring psychology and all its manifestations, sociology, linguistics, anthropology. And we combine that with all sorts of other ways of understanding reality, like um, philosophy or the study of history, literature, poetry, music, um, and even meditative practices, contemplative science, for example, or the study of spiritual traditions, and try to see if there's a conciliant or common ground uh, across these usually independent disciplines and that's the field of interpersonal neurobiology. And I'm the founding editor of the Norton series of interpersonal neurobiology. And we have over now 70 textbooks that I've overseen the publication of uh, designed in this case for mental health professionals. But we also work in the field of education, parenting, working with organizations, governments, different things like that. So mm. it's, it's a way of kind of understanding reality that then helps us see, for example, what consciousness is all about and how to harness that to cultivate well-being. Mm. You've written a lot of books, and they have to do with the brain. And uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the areas that you've covered in, in some of your other books before we jump into this latest one. Sure. Well, the idea of interpersonal neurobiology is to lay a foundation for understanding the nature of reality. Uh, and so the first book was The Developing Mind, which is a textbook for undergraduates and graduate students going into its third edition, which basically summarizes all these fields and says, what is the mind? Mm. What is a healthy mind? How do you develop a, a healthy mind? And then it looks that deeply through the science that under uh, underlays the, these um, proposals. Mm -hmm. uh, then there's a book called Parenting from the Inside Out. <clears throat> which basically takes these ideas and applies it to the parenting role. I wrote that with Mary Hartzell. Then there's a book called The Mindful Brain, which was I was exposed to mindfulness very late in my career. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to understand why 
was mindfulness something that seemed to overlap actually with my field of research, which is attachment, mm. you know, that secure attachment outcomes and mindful awareness seem to go hand in hand. So that was really interesting. Then there's a book called Mindsight, which is um, basically looking at stories of how people have used uh, these ideas of interpersonal neurobiology, especially that integration, the linkage of differentiated parts is the basis of well-being. How do they use that in personal transformation? So mm. it's stories of actual people who have used these ideas. Um, there's the Pocket Guide to Interpersonal Neurobiology, which is basically a nonlinear book that looks at the interaction of all these ideas with each other and a book called The Mindful Therapist, which takes you on a walk through how to apply it as a professional uh, working in this field. And then with my student, now colleague and co-writer, Tina Payne Bryson, we wrote several parenting books. Um, we wrote The Whole Brain Child, No Drama Discipline, and The Yes Brain, mm -hmm. all about applying these ideas of integration in very practical ways for parents. And then I wrote a book called Brainstorm, which is about uh, these ideas applied for an adolescent to read. Then a book called Mind, which is kind of a journey book to see where in the world did these wild ideas come from and what's <laughs> the scientific basis of them. And it looks at the questions of, you know, the six interrogatives, like how do we function that promotes well-being? Who are we? Um, where are we? When are we? What are we? And even why are we here? Mm -hmm. So it looks at these, you know, interrogative questions, the who, what, whys, you know, mm -hmm. and systematically ask these questions throughout the book, um, so it's a journey book that invites you as a reader to go along. And then then this book called um, Aware, mm -hmm. The Science and Practice of Presence, uh, is the next book in that whole long series that teaches you to do one of the central um, practices to cultivate integration is the integration of consciousness. And that's what the Wheel of Awareness is all about. Mm, I can't wait to get uh, into the Wheel of Awareness to help people understand it a little better. And I wanted to say to my listeners, I found this book to be immediately useful and uh, so much so that I altered my my classes for the graduate course I was teaching last week which was teaching I was teaching teachers who are getting their masters uh, of education degrees and we went over this this wheel of awareness it was really helpful to understand um, separate differentiating thoughts and feelings and so forth from ourselves as the observer which now I have the expert to, to explain it to you. And um, and this was just fantastic. It, it brought up a lot of insights and, and really fruitful conversation. And and before we get into that, I was also from this book aware, you talk about the mind um, as different from the brain, but the mind not being the brain or this skull encased thing we sometimes think of it as or that our our bodies carry around the real us in our skulls and i that is a a point that i think would be very new to a lot of people i hope that you could flesh that out a little bit yeah i mean lisa that's a really important place to start and and usually kind of surprises people mm -hmm. um and just to start with the background you know the word mind m i n d and a lot of people say the self comes from the mind. So it would be like, who are you? Who's yourself? You know, relates to what we think of the mind. Amazingly, in the various fields, whether it's mental health or education or even the field of psychology or psychiatry, fields I'm trained in, or, um, you know, the field of even philosophy of mind, there is no definition of the mind short of brain activity. Mm. Uh, it's just it's just absolutely fascinating. Mm. Um so that's the first thing to say. There just isn't a definition. So back in the early 90s, it's a long story that I talk about in all my books, but especially in the book Mind. Um, I'll just say this, you know, that the journey I've been on the last you know, quarter of a century has been to say, well, to say that the mind is the same as brain activity. When did that first start? Well, it was started by Hippocrates 2,500 years ago who said all your joys and sorrows, you know, all elements of your mind come from your head. And William James, a wonderful leader, the father of the modern psychology, he affirmed that, you know, reaffirmed that basically. It was mm -hmm. being said for 2,500 years, then in 1890 in the Principles of Psychology, he said the same thing. And it's pretty much the standard line in academia. 
you know, mind is brain activity. In fact, in a recent textbook on psychology for, for undergraduates, it says, you know, finally, there's a definition of the mind. It says brain activity related to feelings, thoughts, and behavior. Mm. Well, you know, I'm an attachment researcher, you know, I study parent-child relationships as well as um, a therapist. And for me, mind happens as much within us as between us, among us, you know. Mm. And so the question then was, what could be the stuff that could be both within and between? And back in 1992, I brought a whole bunch of scientists together to, to kind of ask that question. And no one could answer the the question and the, the 40 scientists in the room were kind of angry at each other because no one agreed <laughs> on anything. So I had to come up with something. And so I went for a long walk in the intervening week. And I thought, well, what could be within and between could be, you know, energy flow. Mm -hmm. That it's what I study as an attachment researcher and patterns of communication are basically sound and sight and stuff like the touch, you know, it's all energy flow. And mm -hmm. sometimes it contains symbolic meaning, which is called information, mm -hmm. but it's all energy and information flow, if you will, it comes down to energy flow. And that's essentially what the brain is. I mean, my mm -hmm. teacher of brain science, uh, you know, David Hubel, he won the Nobel Prize when I was in school for showing how he didn't use these terms of basically patterns of light coming into a brain changes its structure. So, you know, the brain mm -hmm. is a processor, processor of energy flow and relationships are a sharing of energy flow. So I came back to the group and basically it's a long story, but the short version is I said, the system of mind is energy flow that is not constrained by skull or skin. Mm. And it's different from how people think, but it changes the way you understand, you know, how mind comes from that mm. system we can talk about next. And right. And how, and it's, there's a network happening among us there, and you, you go into this in the book as well, that there's a we happening and that, there's a mind-body connection. There isn't a dichotomy between the brain up here and then just this shell that there's neurons all over the body and the, the, the gut mind. And, so, you know, it's not this dislocated area that the brain is. You say the, the body controls the brain, not the brain, the body. Well, they're interactive for mm -hmm. sure. And the, and the head, head brain is... Mm -hmm responsible for organizing a lot of things that happens in the body. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's, that's also another, um, going to be first time information for a lot of people that, that, that there's such a coordination between the body and the brain. And when you think of, when you think about it, it seems actually sort of makes sense and seems practical, but we've just not been told that we just are told the, you know, the brain is the, the end all be all of who we are as people. And it doesn't have any, you know, there isn't anything else. And so um, this part about interconnectedness is so, uh, so important in the book. And it's actually what, what I study too. So this is what, this is kind of like you're speaking my love language here. <laughs> so mm -hmm, no, beautiful. This interconnected, um, interconnection is, is hard to measure it's hard to measure in some ways, but on the other hand, it's it's refreshing to me that you are actually are measuring it. And we can get into a little later about those 10,000 people who reflect in on awareness themselves. And uh, mm -hmm. I would love to touch on that. But maybe you can talk a little bit about what you mean by this wheel of awareness and, and this hub center. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in the long journey that unfolded since that meeting a long time ago, you know, two things emerged. One was the idea that integration is the linking of differentiated parts. And the notion that integration was the basis of well-being came from a long line of reasoning of seeing the mind as what's called a self-organizing emergent phenomena of a complex system of energy flow that's both in your body as well as, you know, including your head, but also it's relational. So this embodied and relational self-organizing emergent property is what I proposed the mind is back in 92. And when you look at self-organization, mathematics says that when you link differentiated parts of a complex system, it's how you optimize self-organization. And there's a lot of um, science behind what I'm about to say, but the bottom line is 
um, whether the system is the system of the brain or the brain in the body or the person in a relationship like a child with a parent or a school and a classroom in a school or a whole school or a community or, or a society or a whole planet. It turns out integration is actually a really useful measure of the kinds of processes that promote well-being or inhibit it. So when integration is impaired, you're either blocking differentiation and or linkage you get chaos or rigidity. Mm. And when you allow integration to naturally arise, then harmony arises and has five features of being flexible, adaptive, coherent, energizing, stable. Anyway, forget mm -hmm. all that except just know it looks like integration is the basis of well-being. Mm. You take that proposal um, and then you add it to a second suggestion, which is that intentional change requires consciousness. And then you ask the weird question, what would happen if you integrated consciousness? Mm. So then I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a therapist, so I, I would have patients in my office and I had this table with a central like glass uh, hub, if you will, if it's a wheel, you know, center of the, the table is glass and the outside was wood. Mm. And I said, hey, let's come on up off your chair, couch, and let's integrate consciousness and then we go what are you talking about <laughs> i said well if consciousness is the experience of knowing and you're able to know the knowns let's put the knowns on the rim like what you hear what you see or taste or touch or what you feel in your body or what your memories are or emotions or thoughts or something mm. those are knowns like if i say hello to you lisa you have the experience of the hello that would be on the in this case, sound would be the hearing of hello. Mm -hmm. But you also, did you know I said hello? Did you have awareness? Yes, yes. Yeah, so you were aware. So the experience of being aware, we're going to put in the hub. Mm. So that's how you differentiate visually in a metaphor, the knowing of the hub from the knowns on the rim. And so to integrate consciousness, you take a, a metaphoric spoke of attention and you're going to systematically differentiate all the elements of the rim from each other, but then also differentiate them from the hub, but then link them all together. So it's the linking of differentiated parts. So you're integrating consciousness with this simple, you know, visual image. It's a table in my office, but it's a visual image of a wheel. No one wanted to call it the table of awareness. So <laughs> it's, um, uh, you know, a wheel with a hub and a rim and a spoke. And then what happened was people started getting better. Mm. They started reducing their fear, their anxiety, their mild to moderate depression. They were dealing with traumas better, even dealing with issues of death. It was feeling better. So then, you know, I got the courage to start teaching it to my students who were therapists of all ilks. And they started finding for their own personal practice, it was helpful. And then they started using it on their clients and they gave me lots of reports of their clients getting better. Mm -hmm. So then I had the, you know, strength of will because I'm a very doubting person <laughs> to say, let me try this in workshops. So I started doing it in workshops and would record the workshops. Mm -hmm. So I did it systematically with 10,000 people. Wow. And I would then record, you know, what whoever wanted to take the microphone, whatever they shared. Mm -hmm. And amazingly, whatever country I was in or whatever educational or professional background or gender or religion or anything, the, the, the results had a quite universal quality to them. Everyone was unique, of course. But as they attempted to put to words, it's very difficult to explain with words experience, then um, you'd find these incredible commonalities. And so then I took those findings of the 10,000 person study and I said, wow, what in the world is going on? Maybe it's not just integrating consciousness. It's a window into the nature of mind. What could this be related to? So I took the original statement, the mind is an emergent property of energy. And then I went to the experts in energy, which are physicists. Mm -hmm. And I spent a long, long time drilling down with them you know, what exactly is energy? And of course they say it's in different forms, you know, electrical energy, chemical energy, mm. mechanical energy, kinetic energy, you know, there's the energy of sound, of light. I said, yeah, but what do they all share in common? And ultimately what they said was this, energy is the movement from possibility to actuality. Mm. And I took that definition of energy and then mapped it onto the 10,000 person study and that's where the book aware comes from is saying, here's what the hub may actually be. Mm. Here's what the rim may actually be. 
And if, 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 with a million ifs there, because it could be completely wrong, but if it's true, then there are certain incredible implications of it for how we live our lives individually and in families and in schools and in organizations and together as a human family that come from this idea. And this is why I'm so excited about the book Aware, because mm. I tried my best with my daughter's illustrations in there, mm. you know, to just do it step by step. So that everyone could really see visually as these ideas that may seem abstract, but actually when you start to live them, mm -hmm. they're anything but abstract. They're kind of these liberating, concrete experiences you have that it may have been hard to understand what it is. But when you look at the mind as an emergent property of energy, then suddenly you see, oh, I get it. This is what's actually happening to me. So, you know, every do I do the, every day I do the Wheel of Awareness practice. You know, I get this opportunity to, you know, explore the um, the different dimensions of energy that we can talk about if you want in a moment. Yeah, that would be great. So, for for listeners who are, I mean, the, they don't have the benefit of seeing the wheel right now as as you've described it. Is it can be a little hard for some people who are visual, but it's it is a really it is really helpful to see the wheel and you have a, something on your website to to show people that um what when i described it to my students and drew drew a little wheel out on the whiteboard you know your the the biggest takeaway immediately was just that you aren't your thoughts and feelings and that's something people seem to get very quickly that you can observe them and you can focus your attention toward them or then pull your attention away and that a lot of people, as you say in your book, live on the rim and they aren't ever separated from what their senses are necessarily and they can't look back on them. I'm sure. And then the, the, there's an awareness practice is what you're we're talking about, too, that you can do mindfulness practice that you go through in the book that really dives deep into this model that you can you can be aware of your awareness and, and you can mm -hmm. really um, have just a, there, there are a lot of benefits. Like I, I could tell I did a lot of mindfulness practices with, with the teachers I taught. And then if they could, could picture themselves as differentiated from their thoughts and feelings and sensations, it gave them a lot of extra space to, to do inner work and, and so forth. Yeah, it's beautiful. Beautiful. Exactly. When you ask the question, okay, well, why is it, for example, when the 10,000 person study, when people have this step where you systematically, you know, go through what you hear, what you see, what you smell, what you taste, what you touch mm -hmm. on the first segment of the rim, you move the spoke over to the second segment. And now you're on the interior sensations of the body, which are the muscles the bone sensations, the sensations of the genitals, the sensations of the intestines, the respiratory system, the heart, and then the whole body. And then you move the spoke of attention to the third segment of the rim, which is mental activities like emotions, thoughts, and memories, mm -hmm. um, and other things, you know, and then you explore in an advanced step, the hub itself by bending the spoke around, or some people prefer the image of retracting the spoke or just leaving the spoke in the hub. Some people like the idea of just no spoke, just being in the hub mm -hmm. and you experience that. And then you straighten the spoke out or send the spoke out to the fourth and final segment of the rim, which is the experience of our connection to things outside the body. So other people on the planet, mm. um, and that's the practice, you know, and it's, you know, there's a short version, there's a long version, mm -hmm. but anyway, when people do it, you know, there's a lot to say about it, but here, let's just focus on the hub itself. When people, you know, bend the spoke around or feel the space between mental activities, um, or just rest in the hub, you know, they describe this expansiveness, this loss of time, mm -hmm. this sense of being connected to everything. Uh, some people it's love, some people, God, some people, awe, joy, gratitude. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I do this practice every day and each time it has different aspects of those qualities. Mm. Um, so the question is what's going on? Why would this happen all around the planet when people differentiate the knowing of awareness from the knowns and just drop into awareness? Mm. Would they have this feeling? Mm. So that's the question. 
and here's a, an attempt to just try to provide a scientific framework that fits with those empirical findings, because those are scientific findings. That is, they've been systematically collected in a pretty controlled way, mm-hmm. recorded, collated, and now the question is, what in the world is going on? <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I went to these physicists and asked them, well, you know, you're the experts in energy. What exactly is energy? And they say, well, you know, it comes in these different forms, but it's the movement from possibility to actuality. And then I go, oh, my gosh, Hmm. this could explain the whole 10,000 person study findings. Hmm. And and if you draw um, a graph of this, just to give you a feeling for it, and I do this very slowly and gradually with the help of my daughter's drawings in the book, you know, um, what you would see then is if you, let's say, start with our drawing as an up and down axis, where this is called the Y axis on a graph and a left to right axis is the X axis. Let's make the X axis change or what some people call clock time or just time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the Y up and down axis would be what's called a probability distribution curve where probability can move between the top of the graph, which would be 100 mm. percent or the bottom, which would be what's called near zero. So let me give you an example. Like, let's say. Lisa, you and I were sharing uh, a vocabulary with a million words that were possible. Mm -hmm. And you don't know which of the words I'm thinking of right now, Mm -hmm. but I'm thinking of a word. What's your chance of knowing that one of a million words? One in a million. (laughs) Exactly. It's one in a million. So that's pretty close to zero. So we would put that at the bottom of the graph. So you'd put Mm -hmm. that point, let's say point A. Mm -hmm. Then you go, okay, that's fine. And now I say the word ocean. And now the possibility of the million words has turned into an actuality of one out of those million words. And now if we put it up on the graph, a point at the 100 percent mark, you'd say, I know the word is ocean. Dan said ocean. So it's one out of one or 100 percent. Right. You know what the word is. It's ocean. Mm -hmm. But now let's say I'm going to say one of the five oceans in the world, Indian Ocean, Pacific Ocean, Atlantic Ocean, you know. And you have a chance of one out of five. What's the chance of you knowing? One out of five. One out of five. So that would be way up, mm-hmm. way above one out of a million, right? It would be now we're going to call this a plateau, where in that plateau rests five choices, one of the five oceans, right? Mm-hmm. And now I say Pacific Ocean. And what's emerged from that plateau of increased probability, increased over one out of a million, is, let's call that a plateau, it just it rises up into an actuality. I've said Pacific Ocean. Mm-hmm. So now we're at a peak again. Mm-hmm. So these 100% marks are actualizations that we're going to call peaks. When you have a cluster of a subset of stuff that could arise, but not the total that could be there, then let's call that a plateau of increased probability. But then when you drop all the way down, you're into, if you, if you put out a, a, a third axis, a z-axis, of diversity, how many things could be there all at once? Don't worry too much about that for now. Um, then that would be uh, the drawing at the bottom where it's maximal possibilities. Let's call that the plane of possibility because it gets drawn out across these axes. Mm. So the plane of possibility is the maximum options that exist. Mm. Now in physics, that's called the sea of potential or the quantum vacuum. Mm. And the way quantum physicists describe that is that is the formless source of all form. Hmm. So that's just a finding in science. Mm -hmm. So the formless source of all form is called the quantum vacuum or the sea of potential. On our graph, we're calling it the plane because it looks like a plane in a geometric shape, plane of possibility. Hmm. Now, what that says is that all possibilities rest in the plane of possibility. So ironically, it has this <laughs> simultaneity of being empty of form, but full of possibility. Right, right. And there's right? a sense, seems like there's a sense of that then. Exactly. And that's mm. exactly what people describe. It's weirdly mm. empty, but full. Yeah, yeah. You know? And this, I think, is why. So here's what I think is going on. Huh. I think the hub that is awareness 
is when the probability position has moved to the plane of possibility and that the rim represents plateaus and peaks. Huh. Yeah. Right. I see I see it. what you mean. Yeah. And what that says then is that uh oh, I'm sorry, you're going to say something. Well, um the the rim is kind of your you you're gone to chaos or rigidity in that case as well? Or not necessarily. You know, I you know, it could be. It could okay. be like that. Like if you're imprisoned in a plateau or a set of peaks, that could be mm-hmm. that. But no, I mean, you can have, you know, looking at someone and saying, I love you, that's a peak. Mm, okay. You know, but yeah. there's nothing rigid or chaos and chaotic right. about it. okay. Yeah, no. So I don't, I don't think, no. Uh, your, your peaks and your plateaus are great. Mm-hmm. You just don't want them to be rigid or chaotic. <laughs> like, okay, yeah. Like if I keep on saying to my neighbor, you're a dummy, you're a dummy, you're a dummy. I mean, that's pretty rigid. So that's not very integrated, right? But those are all peaks, peaks, peaks. So you can have, so peaks and plateaus by themselves are not good or bad. Uh It's how integrated they are that determines whether they're chaotic or rigid. Hmm. Okay. Wow. So, so that is a, the reason it's a universal feeling is because it's a fundamental, um, it's fundamental to being. Exactly. The mm. fundamental nature of mind. Mm. That's a great hypothesis. I, I, I appreciate that very much, huh? The oneness that you sense is, is possibly that this is the kind of thing that is shared in, in universal terms. Well, yes, exactly, because infinity, which is what the plane is, is infinity. So your plane and my plane are identical. So where we find each other in common ground is in the plane of possibility and where we're differentiated, which is fine, is in our plateaus and peaks. So in other words, from a metaphor point of view, we find each other in the hub, which is the plane of possibility, Mm -hmm. and we're differentiated on our rims, which is the plateaus and peaks, which is fine. It's good to be differentiated and linked. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't drop into the plane so they don't feel our true interconnected nature. You need both to to be an integrated person, you right? You're saying you, you need the peaks and you need the the hub experience of of the oneness or the reflection. But have you noticed from from your observation how long people can s- sustain the oneness feeling or the hub that hub feeling or sensation or whatever? Well, it's it's really a really interesting question you're asking. Um and, you know, in the book, I really tried to address this in the following way, where um, a, an integrated life would enable you to freely move from plane to plateau to peak and not favor one of the other or, you know, or say I'm supposed to just be in, you know, the sense of interconnection thing with everything. Mm-hmm. So now what that means, though, is that, you know, you can do so rather than saying I'm going to live only in the plane of possibility Mm -hmm. um, where I get into a car, for example, and I just say, well, I'm at one with everything. Well, yeah, sure. You don't you're not going to activate your plateau of driving a car or your peak of stepping on the brakes. (laughs) So when you get into an intersection, you will become one with everything because you haven't activated a peak, you know, (laughs) crash, you know? So, so, but there are people who will say the only true way to live is that you're really just connected to everything. So that's like trying to live only in the plane. So what I try to say in the book is, and I'll say it here is, I think you want to live from the plane of possibility, not in the plane. And, and allowing integration to naturally arise because here are the implications if, you know, a million ifs, if this proposal is true and it fits with things. So that's kind of cool, but that doesn't make it accurate. But so it could be totally wrong. But if it's right, then here are some of the implications. Number one, awareness, the subjective experience of knowing seems to arise when the probability position has moved into the plane And what physicists say is energy arises from the plane. So when you're actually dropping into the plane, it's no longer energy. It's just pure possibility. 
So that's why you'll hear me say weird things like, oh, your probability position is in the plane. Not <laughs> ener- you, I, I, you can't say energy is in the plane because the plane is not energy. Right. Anyway, that, so it's a little awkward, but that's, <laughs> so be it. We're just being honor- we're honoring the true science of it all. So that's one thing. Why awareness would arise from there? I have no idea. Just like any of the brain theories, like integration of information leads to consciousness. No one knows why we have the subjective experience. And I don't know why. Why would the plane of possibility be? I don't know. That's for the next generation to figure out. I have no idea, but it's fascinating. (laughs) It seems to arise from there. That's number one. Number two, you know, let's take an example of Billy. Billy's a five-year-old I talk about in the book. Uh, The teacher teaches him the wheel of awareness as a drawing, not as a meditation or anything, but as a drawing. He was expelled from one school for beating up a kid on the yard. He comes to her school. He learns the wheel like everybody else. The next day he comes to Mrs. Smith, the teacher. He says, Mrs. Smith and Mrs. Smith, you got to give me a break because I'm on the yard. Joey took my blocks. I'm about to punch him. I'm lost on my rim. I got to get back to my hub. Mm. Now, what he's saying in plane of possibilities terms, what I call three P terms, meaning plane, plateaus, peaks, is that he became aware of the impulse to hit Joey. And not only did he have this subjective experience of awareness, that number two is not only awareness, it gives him a pause to put a space between impulse and action. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Mm-hmm. But number three, if you think about this model, the plane is the source of other options. It's the mm-hmm. form, source of all form. So he's dropping the probability position into the source of other choices. Mm-hmm. So the reason in this proposal, consciousness permits choice and change is because the plane of possibility is the source of other choices for other plateaus and peaks to arise. Mm -hmm. So that's point number three, right? So we have awareness, number one. We have number two, the idea that um, you put a pause between impulse and action. That's cool. Number three, you have actually other options are there. Mm -hmm. And then number four the plane is the source of presence. It's the source through which um, integration naturally arises. Presence is the portal through which integration arises. So then Billy can let pro-social, compassionate behavior arise. He doesn't have to make it happen. Mm. The plane allows it to happen because self-organization is built upon integration. Integration is the basis for pro-social behavior. When you drop into the plane, you release the natural drive of your self-organizing mind to let its natural state of being loving, compassionate, and kind to arise. Hmm. So point number four is that you're permitting a natural state of loving, compassionate, respectful communication and connection to arise. That's number four. And then number five is, as we just said, Billy's plane and Joey's plane are the same plane, right? It's infinity is infinity. Mm -hmm. And so he will experience, not as an idea, but as a felt sense that Billy and Joey are actually the same being. He doesn't even have to articulate it like that. But you look into a person's eyes and when you look from a place of presence, mm-hmm. you see the presence inside of them. You see their plane of possibility and you see that we, that that what you call other person. I can't stand that term, but that's the <laughs> English we have. Mm-hmm. That other person actually is you. Mm-hmm. The interconnected. It, it's interconnected and it's just a manifestation of the same beingness because the body is a false definition of the self. Mm hmm. So that's five implications of this 3P, you know, perspective on the nature of mind and consciousness. Well, help me understand this this piece. When you say it's the natural organization of the, or you can just correct me if I'm getting off the track, but the natural organization of the brain to be kind and loving. Mind, the mind. Oh, oh the mind. Then does that go in the face of the sort of, um, survival, the fittest, or you know, king of the hill, or the selfish, the selfish um, gene, or something that where well, you go for your self-interest. Can you? I, I think help me we with do that? have. Yeah, I think we do have. I think we're born into a body mm-hmm. that makes it challenging to let the mind do its natural thing. Mm-hmm. 
And then we have a culture that reinforces this false view of a separate self that builds on the, you know, um, survival basis of defining the self as separate or, you know, a collective self would be just people with my skin color or my religion or, you know, my family of origin or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and so we have challenges ahead of us for sure, because you're born into a body that doesn't naturally let loving others who are not like you arise. And so we need to do specific kinds of mental training mm-hmm. to allow this, as Einstein would call it, this um, wider circle of compassion to be cultivated. Because mm-hmm. we have what he called this optical delusion of our separateness. Mm-hmm. Not even an illusion. A delusion is a psychotic belief. Mm-hmm. It is a psychotic belief that we're separate from each other. Mm. In your book, you talk about mind training being three basic things, focused attention, open awareness, and, and positive regard towards others or, or kind intention. And yep. of course, this plays into the, the wheel of awareness practice. But could you go into a little bit of this kind of plays into what we're, we're speaking of, how you train your mind differently to, to not uh, react in what are actually culturally appropriate, but very harmful, usually very harmful patterns and habits of our lives usually. Right. Well, the research um, is really clear, and this is summarized in a number of different studies, but including a book by Richie Davidson and Dan Goldman called Altered Traits. And aspects of it are elaborated in a beautiful book by Elizabeth Blackburn and Alyssa Eppel called The Telomere Effect. Um, But the bottom line is, you know, at this point anyway, there are three core pillars of mind training that seem to promote the cultivation of well-being. Uh, And those include developing focused attention and attention, in my view, is, you know, the way you uh, cultivate the streaming of uh, energy and information flow. And uh, so focused attention is how you learn to strengthen the ability to, you know, focus that energy flow in a certain way. And you do this in the first two segments of the rim practice on the wheel. Uh, Then there's open awareness, the second pillar. And this is really in our third segment of the rim, you open awareness to a kind of bring it on attitude where you really sit within the hub and distinguish the hub from the rim. Mm. And that is an extension of what you've already been beginning to do with focused attention. That's called open awareness. And then the, the third pillar is kind intention, which is usually called compassion training or loving kindness training or something like that. I call it kind intention because you know, these three aspects, you know, focusing attention, opening awareness, and cultivating the intention that's kind embraces not only compassion, which of course is important, but also empathy and positive respectful regard. Kindness is what emerges with integration. So, and when intention is sort of setting the directionality of energy and information to flow. Um, So you can cultivate kind intention and you know, these three things, focus, attention sort of strengthens the regulatory capacity of the mind. Uh, open awareness allows you to start realizing that you can be in this more receptive state of presence. And then the natural thing next, of course, is to realize how interconnected we are and the positive regard you can have in that way where you cultivate kind intention. So it's really I was teaching with Sharon Salzberg um, a couple months ago, and she has a beautiful way of describing loving kindness as really harnessing our connection to our interconnections with each other. So that's really the fourth segment of the rim. It's just this wonderful, um, I don't want to say coincidence, but fortunate stance that, you know, the three major pillars of mind training that have been research proven to promote well-being turned out the three that are embedded in one practice called the wheel of awareness. So that was just a fortunate thing. Um, And so you get all three in one. Yeah. And you mentioned in the book, intention sets the tone of our mental patterns. So you, you speak a lot about how neurons fire. What, what are you, what is your, <laughs> I'm sure you're going to remember way better than me, but about um, how neurons fire and, and rewire. Well, I mean, the phrase that I find useful is a phrase I made up that says, you know, where attention goes, neural firing flows and neural connection goes grows, I'm sorry, grows. So where attention 
where attention goes, what you're paying attention to, how you're paying attention, neural firing flows, you're activating the brain in certain ways, and neural connection grows, meaning because of neuroplasticity, when energy and information is streaming through certain activated circuits, they activate the genes that allow proteins to be produced, that allow the synaptic connections to be reinforced, and myelin to make the connections among those synaptically connected neurons more efficient. And um, in all those ways, you know, basically attention done in a systematic way that's integrative is literally going to grow integration in the brain. That's what the research shows, that both functional and structural integration is what the outcome of these three pillar trainings are. Um, and if, you know, for those people who like to know the names of the parts of the brain, you know, the hippocampus that integrates, that is links widely differentiated areas to each other grows. The corpus callosum that links the differentiated left and right hemispheres to each other grows. The prefrontal cortex that links the differentiated areas of the brain grow. And even a set of studies called the connectome studies that look at the more subtly differentiated areas and how they're more subtly linked to each other, that grows. And overall, as far as my interns and I can tell, um, every form of regulation, like regulating attention, emotion, memory, thought, behavior, relationality, morality, all that stuff, it all depends on integration in the brain. So a more integrated brain, in all these ways we're defining, is a more regulated brain and a more resilient brain. So essentially what you're doing is you're using your mind, harnessing the power of attention in very systematic ways, these three pillars, to stimulate the growth of integration in the brain, which is the base of regulation. And one of our online, we have an online program, one of our online students once called up and said, oh my God, did you hear the study that just came out today? And she sent us the study. And sure enough, when you looked at correlations of well-being and happiness with neural structure and function, the best predictor was how integrated the brain was, is the best predictor of well-being. Mm. And we had already shown in a number of studies that um, impaired well-being is associated with impaired integration. Mm. So when you put this together with these studies that the three pillars create integration in the brain, mm -hmm. it's a pretty awesome, consilient mm. set of findings, you know. Yeah. It, it also reinforces the the idea that when when, when humans are isolated from each other, that interconnection is, you know, that can not be fruitful because there isn't, there isn't connection with other people. If somebody's extremely isolated, they can develop a lot of health issues and, and they won't have the same kind of integration necessarily. Well, exactly. I mean, the mind is a relational as well as embodied process. Mm. So when you're disconnected, you're like destroying half your mind. Mm. Wow. And and then you think about solitary confinement, or or just people who are lonely and and isolated in their homes, or you know, watching TV instead of being able to have friendships or something. They are can get more and more unwell. Um, yeah, exactly. It's really um, the science backs that up as well. And also, of course, the the obvious point is uh, probably what everybody winds up asking one way or the other is all the science seems to back up what what religious and spiritual traditions have been practicing for a long time things like meditation and prayer seem to focus attention and um and, and certain spiritual traditions have been doing this for thousands of years or hundreds of thousands of years maybe yeah you know i i recently did for my dear friend john O'Donohue, which in English we pronounce John O'Donohue, um, <laughs> uh, but I was corrected there in Ireland, which was beautiful. Uh, you know, we did a, an honoring of him because he passed about 10 years ago, and he and I were writing a book on the bridge between science and spirituality, and, you know, he was a mystic, uh, an Irish mystic, and also a Catholic priest. He had been a Catholic priest and a philosopher and a poet, so it was a really fascinating collaboration we had, and you know, this view of the plane of possibility uh, overlaps with what John had written about called now that I just discovered right before I did the talk for him uh, on the poetics of possibility. And, um, you know, people don't uh, usually see a bridge between these fields. But yes, I, I, what, what happened in this convening in John's honor uh, and what this work really suggests is 
as John would have said, you know, a marriage that was never dissolved could be finally acknowledged to be there, which is, you know, the pursuit of meaning and connection, which some people would say is what the word spiritual really means. Meaning and connection, meaning beyond survival, connection beyond the boundaries of your skin. You know, in science, uh, specifically in physics, we know that certain equations, certain properties, certain laws that, that Sir Isaac Newton figured out 350 years ago that apply to large objects like planets or like, you know, your car or an airplane or your body. Mm -hmm. Those are called Newtonian or classical physics laws. Mm -hmm. They are absolutely fine. You know, you get in your car, you press on the brakes, the car stops. Mm -hmm. But we now know in the last 100 years uh, <clears throat> that those conditions of large objects, which are accumulations of small things, a small thing is called a microstate, like an electron. Mm -hmm. When you get a bunch of small things, microstates bunched together, we call it a macrostate. And macrostates, interact with each other in with the principles that Isaac Newton figured out called Newtonian classical physics. One of those things is certainty. You press on the brakes, that car is going to certainly stop. Get in an airplane bound for New York. As long as all the mechanics are working, that plane is going to New York. Mm. Fine. So certainty is Newtonian and things have a directionality of change. So if you and I, Lisa, we crack an egg open uh, you can't uncrack the egg. There's a directionality of change hmm. because an egg is a macrostate. It's an accumulation of a lot of microstates. Hmm. But when you study the quantum level of microstates, then those properties don't apply. Hmm. Proper certainty does not apply. So quantum rules are all about probabilities, not certainties. Um, and there's other things that come up, like the arrow of time, the directionality of change does not exist at the microstate level. Hmm. There is no arrow of time. And uh, when you add, in addition, um, the controversial but uh, discussed possibility that the act of being aware of observing may, I underscore may a million times, may actually influence the probability state of energy. Mm -hmm. And a fourth property, which is that what we think of as space as separating us um, in, on the quantum level for sure, but even at other levels, it's not probably true. But at the quantum level, space does not alter the relationality of coupled energy. And so that's mm. called entanglement or non-locality. Those are proven, not even mm. hypotheses. Those are proven aspects of reality. Mm. So what I think happens when people drop into the hub of the wheel and describe this expansiveness, this loss of time, this sense of interconnection, this feeling of love, mm -hmm. this feeling of eternity, of infinity, is that the plane of possibility is a microstate. Mm. And people are experiencing these quantum levels of reality that in one workshop, you know, a woman came up to me afterwards, experienced the difference in the hub of these timelessness feelings and on the rim, you know, time, it was arrow bound because I think we have both macro state configurations of the stuff on the rim you know these um, mm -hmm. plateaus and peaks have macro state features to them thoughts come and go you can't really get them back mm -hmm. um so she said listen i live near sir isaac newton's house come over to england and <laughs> do the wheel of awareness and we did it around the apple tree <laughs> where he figured out gravity <laughs> and it was this amazing moment uh, we, we a documentary film was made of it and you know it was just so interesting to have a view of the nature of consciousness to be at Sir Isaac Newton's house where he was born. And when there was a plague at Cambridge University, he took time off and figured out all these things like gravity and stuff. Mm -hmm. And paying homage to him to be really respectful of him, but say, look, now we know more about the nature of the quantum level of reality. And as some people have said to me, you know, they felt this, but they had nowhere to put it. Mm -hmm. And now they can understand it in a deep way. And so the reason in the book Aware you know, I go through this really gradually step by step, you know, and my daughter, Maddie Siegel, she did a beautiful job, you know, I think of illustrating these 
what can be sometimes difficult to understand concepts, she was able to just visually graph them out, you know, is that you can take this into your life as a wheel of awareness practice, mm-hmm. understand the mechanisms beneath the wheel that is, you know, the plane of possibility is the hub. These plateaus and peaks are the rim and it transforms how you live. Mm-hmm. And this is why I think people with anxiety or fears or depression or whatever can get better over it because when they drop into the plane, they actually liberate other ways of being than the imprisoning, mm-hmm. either chaotic, rigid plateaus and peaks that were creating their suffering. Mm. Yeah, and, and that's that's exactly the, the sense that I got as well when I was um, having people imagine that they're in the hub. I was just doing... Uh, not the full practice with my students, but that's that was what was so empowering was to think I can focus attention here, I can focus attention there, and it gave you a, a, a totally different view than if you were hijacked to the rim, <laughs> and and I, that's why uh, it, it clicks together in that in that really amazing way. I know that um, just our talking about it is probably not going to, it's just giving people really a taste of what's in the book, but maybe that's a good thing then. <laughs> and when, when people do it, they experience directly. And this is what's so exciting about the Aware book is that people, you know, you can read the ideas, that's fine, but you do the practice all along while you're going through the book. And then you're also seeing what's going on in the potential explanations of it gradually, 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 until, you know, the third part of the book, you're coming back to these five human beings that did the wheel and you see from what you heard about in the beginning of the book, how they got improved, like Billy, for example, and then you do it yourself and then you hear the science and then you come back to them. You go, whoa, Mm. now with the plane of possibility view, now I really deeply understand how the wheel transformed their life because this is what they were doing with their energy patterns. So for people who who feel a little bit confused by our conversation, if there's anyone out there, where, where do you tell them to start? Besides your, besides your going and getting your book, where would you tell them to, to begin uh, trying to understand the wheel or trying to begin the practice? Just go to your guided meditation part about it? Or where yeah, does, where I think that's a good, you know, I think going to the book is the best way to start it guides you through it step by step and then going to the website d-r-d-a-n-s-i-e-g-e-l dr dan siegel.com and then go to the resources and there's you know there's a whole bunch of things to do there there's different videos you can watch there's different audio things you can do this i mean if you really want to do it, there's a you know 36 hour online training program you can do um you know there's lots of ways to get getting deeper into it but in terms of the wheel yeah the wheel is there for people to stream it and try it. And it's a great way to just dive in and experience it and uh, let us know how it goes because we're at a very exciting moment. Can you imagine what it would be like if we all could see how deeply interconnected we are and our task is to really light up each other's candles, if you will, you know, Mm -hmm. to realize we're not just separate waxy candles, Mm -hmm. that we are the light Mm -hmm. and bringing in that light is really what life is all about and mm-hmm. making this a brighter world. That's something mm-hmm. that I'm hoping the book will facilitate us all doing together. Yeah. Thank you so much for your work and, and for coming on this show. This has been fantastic. And I think you're, you're putting language and, and some, some science to something that, that people have experienced and called mysticism. And it's great to see that there's finally <laughs> There's finally like studies about it. I guess I should say I'm finding a lot. Well, of, there's uh, a scientific framework uh, that builds on the studies for sure, but you really have to, you know, do this consilient um, joining of different approaches that I think is, you know, like bringing the physics together with the brain science, with the contemplative practice, with the ten thousand person study. You know, it really honors first person subjective experience with all the second person reports and all the data you get from third person information. And, you know, I, it's an incredibly exciting moment for all of us to be just working together to, to um, give people this capacity to create more integration in their lives. Is there other places online besides your website that you can be found? No, that's it. Just the website. That's, mm-hmm. I mean, we have an institute called the Mindsight Institute, but mm-hmm. it's best to get there through drdansiegel.com.
Wonderful. Thank you so much for being a guest on my show. It's been wonderful. Oh, a pleasure. Thank you, Lisa. I appreciate it. If you've listened to the show and you've thought, wow, I wish I could find out a little bit more about someone mentioned or a book or a website, that's what show notes are for. Just go to patreon.com forward slash spark my muse. Patreon is like patron with an E. Patreon.com forward slash spark my muse. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>